Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Uh, I am dying to have today's guest speak to you about what he's done and, and his life. Uh, this is a hell of a story. So he is a high school dropout. And while working for a minimum wage, minimum wage, that uh, at the time his girlfriend, uh, he was going picking her up or whatever the case may be, gets friendly with her boss who is an entrepreneur. And this guy, and by the way, his girlfriend then, now is his wife, and uh, this guy ends up becoming his mentor. So he's mentoring him about business in general. And fast forward, he's been a seller since 2015. And he's the founder of AMZ Formula, which is an Amazon education platform for private label sellers. And uh, when he's not working, he has two boys, 10 and 15, and a German shepherd that he likes to spend his time with. He's big into anything to do with learning. So uh, with that, everybody, meet my guest, Joshua Chris. Welcome to the show, Josh. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. Super excited to be here. Amazon education platform is a big deal because uh, a lot of Amazon sellers, and uh, this is what made you successful, right? AMZ formula. So uh, we're going to discuss AMZ formula. Tell us what AMZ formula is about. Yeah, so the formula, it was absolutely um, developed when I was starting out and I was trying to figure this out because I didn't have any guidelines or programs to follow. So through trial and error, I developed this simple uh, step program or system, which is where you find a niche that offers a decent amount of products that you can build a catalog around then you can actually develop the brand, create the listing, launch the product, but launch the product to the point where you can mitigate risk by ordering just the right amount to the point where you don't have too much inventory or too little inventory. And then we go ahead and launch the product very aggressively, get that market data so we can see is this product a winner or not. And then from there, we reorder and we scale. So very simple process and one that's proven uh, very effective for myself. So uh, what I'm hearing is first finding the right place. You know, I call this setting yourself up for success, right? So if you are heading into a crowded space, you can probably still go in there, but with some kind of a differentiator. So finding and figuring out what is the right product. And then the next thing is your launch, of course. So uh, once you launch, then it's uh, everything is now up for grabs. Uh, but that launch has to be done the right way because you only get to do it once, right? So it's first impressions, Absolutely. you only get one. And uh, and then scale. So after the launch, what's involved in scale? So that's, that's four. But I remember you mentioning that it is the last piece, which is the critical piece, right? Correct, the exiting, yep. So tell us about that part uh, briefly. Yeah, so once we once we get into a niche, a category, we get our first product, 
that's up and running, then it opens the the playing field to launch three to five products. So the goal is to have four to five products at a $30 price point selling at least 25 units per day. That's a million dollar business. So the goal is within 36 to 72 months, being able to potentially exit this business or merge this business for a large payday. So, and that was one of the biggest mistakes that I made when I was starting out. You know, I grew my brands to several million a year, but I didn't understand EBITDA and how to exit and what mergers and acquisitions were. So now, you know, part of the formula, if you look at a scientist who's creating formula, they're testing and testing and testing until they refine it and per, uh, perfect it. Now the actual formula is to build it, develop it, scale it through vertical and horizontal integration, then hopefully sell it or merge it with another brand for uh, seven, eight, or even nine figures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you are so right. I mean, this this exiting is critical because what I always say is, you know, a long time ago, I think it was a movie I was watching and there was a line in this movie. It was mainly about business. And, and the line was somebody, this guy asked this guy, uh, how much is, is this thing? What's this going to cost if I want? And he says, well, this is not for sale. And he goes, my friend, everything is for sale for the right price. So, right? So, so uh, when you're building a business, do not deceive yourself thinking, oh, this is, I'm going to leave this behind for my kids. And first of all, your kids may not be interested. Uh, so you don't know. There's no guarantee. Uh, but it's about the exit. It's about cashing in. And what is valuable today, tomorrow may not be valuable. So, I mean, we, we've seen that with the whole aggregator space. What happened post-COVID, everything was great. Uh, in 2023, it's no longer. Now it's a different challenge. So uh, you definitely, frankly, if you ask me, finding a product, launching it, and then scaling it, and then, uh, you know, having a business that's generating whatever is really half done unless it's set up for exiting, right? So uh, this is very important. Okay, so for my listeners, I'm going to set up this conversation and you don't want to miss a single minute of this because you're going to learn a lot about what works because here is a man that's done this and he actually educates people about this. So this is not like some ideas coming out. So we're going to learn about how to find a niche where you differentiate yourself in a way that will make you money. It's very important. You can differentiate, but it doesn't make money. It's not enough. Uh, the second thing is planning your launch and then scaling it and then finally exiting it. So with that, uh, let's jump right in. So let's start with the finding and testing a product. So tell us about that, Josh. So <clears throat> when it comes to the product, the product is the most important part of this business. And what happens is when people are starting out, I often recommend that they create realistic expectations and they know what is their freedom formula or a perfect product for themselves. I hate a lot of in this space and in the industry, a lot of people talk about high demand, low competition, saturation, products that can't compete in specific markets. And I often tell people, if you can list it on Amazon, it can sell. So get the, get the fact out of your mind that, oh, I need to find a product that can sell. All products on Amazon that can be listed that don't violate the TOS can sell. The million dollar question is, how can you find a product that's good for you? So before we get into product uh, 
criteria and what I look for, I often tell people to understand what is their appetite. Because if me and you were to come together and let's just say hypothetically put up 100,000 or 200,000 to start a brand new brand and we can launch one to three products with that, with that criteria or that investment, it's going to be totally different from someone that's starting out with their first 10K. They're trying to figure things out. So a few things that I want you to um, identify or write down is number one, what is your total investment that you can invest into product, into inventory, into advertising? Because when we're doing product research, we can use tools like Helium or Jungle Scout, and we can refine our searches based off of criteria. So too many people go too broad looking for these products when they're finding products that don't even meet their viability or products that they could even afford to launch. Because we have inventory, then we have uh, advertising costs associated. So once you understand a little bit about your risk, how long can you wait to make your money back? How long uh, do you have to invest into this, both time and resources? And how much credit and capital do you have? Then you can get into research. When we're looking at research, there's a few of the big ones that we want to make sure that we're hitting on. Number one, we want to make sure that the product is a non-seasonal or semi-seasonal product. Seasonals, pumpkin carving kits, Christmas lights, semi-seasonal or pool floats because in Texas, Florida, or California, they sell all year but not in New York or New Jersey or Chicago, right? So I'm looking for products that are going to sell 24-7, 365, regardless of the time of the year. Next, we want to make sure that we're not infringing on any intellectual property. So you can do a quick Google patent search, or you can hire um, a patent attorney to go ahead and review this. If you're seeing an industry that seems like it's untapped and there's a category king, more than likely there's some intellectual property. Perfect example, blender bottle. Now, Blender Bottle is a nine-figure company that started with a, a bottle that has a, a, a sphere apparatus in the inside so you can shake it and mix proteins, okay? Um, since then, people have came into that industry and, and made motorized ones and bypassed their IP and are tapping into that industry, but that was a category king. So we want to make sure we're not infringing on any intellectual property um, because that can get you in trouble. And this is a huge one. I see a lot of people that spend so much time and effort and energy into finding that one product. And your first product is super important, but you can find a product that can crush it and make a decent amount of money or a lot of money, but it not be a good introductory product. And what I mean by introductory product is after your first product, it should be easy to launch your next three to five products after that. And that's where the money is really gonna be made. And I'll give you a perfect example um, like if you were to get into, if you're to get into a product that um, only has a singular use, right? Like let's say that you were to get into a specific type of water. Okay. Water, there's not too many different ways you could differentiate that. Maybe flavor. For instance, if you get into office products or you get into furniture, the sky's the limit, right? You can differentiate it so many different types of ways. So when you're getting started, understand how much do you have access to, to invest, because that's going to allow you to narrow it down. How much do you want to make? Because so many people say, hey, I want to make 10K a month, 100K a month. And when you look at the investment, the investment doesn't match the ROI. So make sure those two make sense. And then you can literally refine your search to find those products. All right, I want to make 3K a, a, a per month profit. That's 10 units approximately at $10 profit per unit at 30% profit margins. I know I have to find products selling for over $30. So in the filter, you can, you can adjust these filters to make sure that the math makes sense. And then once you're finding these products, you want to ask yourself, is this a good introductory product? Can I launch three to five SKUs after this 
immediately. And that's really the blueprint for getting getting that first brand and that uh, breaking into that niche. Um, another thing, uh, Josh, that I have tried with my clients that turned out to be fairly successful. And frankly, tell me if this would be a way to differentiate is creating packs and bundles, but never sell them as singles. Do you think that would be a strategy for differentiating? Oh yeah, absolutely. When it comes to differentiating, here here's the easiest ways to differentiate a product. And when you're talking about bundles, they're very effective. I do see a lot of people do bundles wrong where they just add a free bonus or something like that. When, when we're adding um, bonuses or we're creating bundles, um, we're looking for what is mandatory for the use of the product, what are they going to use next after they purchase your product? What can they use with your product? Or what is the most frequently bought together? And Amazon will show you this data as well. So these are kind of where we're getting our ideas for bundling. But depending on the niche and the category, bundling is very, very effective for differentiation. Yeah. And another thing is I had a guest a while ago. Uh, this uh, For everybody listening, look up the guest. Uh, I think his name was Alan about micro categories. So he was he was one of those people he was always smiling when he was talking always optimistic always hopeful and and i said to him why he says because i live in a world of opportunities because they keep coming to me and i said well how 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 does that work he says well what he does is of course he's referring to amazon he goes to the best sellers uh, list, you know, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Amazon.com forward slash GP forward slash bestsellers. If you go there, you're going to see on the left hand side, all the categories listed. This is much bigger than much longer than the, any list you have. Uh, Amazon displays anywhere else. But most important, when you click on them. So basically, when you go to that page, you see the top 100. And then you click on the category. It shows you the top 100 in that category that you click, but also opens up the subcategories under it. Now, when you click on the subcategory, then you drill down another layer, and then you see the top 100, and so on and so forth. So uh, I have done this, and I was able to go as far as five layers. So I said to him, which one do you consider that, that, that you call micro-category? How how deep do you need to go? He said, the deeper, the better. So he says, go all the way down to the last layer. And then he's, I said, so then what is the methodology? And I'm coming to you with this uh, to see your take. He said, what you do is, first of all, when you get down to that last layer, you have much, much less number of products available and then you start looking at their reviews and see what people are complaining about look at their rank and right there you see an open field where you can easily move in and and establish yourself by simply leveraging what they are not offering so uh, tell me about your take on this as far as finding a product as a, as a niche product. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense um, in, in terms of drilling down into the different layers of uh, the micro categories or subcategories. Um, 
in terms of the differentiation and product development, the most effective, which you hit on the most effective way and efficient way to do uh, product development when you're getting into a new niche is two things. And you hit on one, which is looking at the reviews. So what I like to do is I like to categorize the list by the top sellers on the first page. And what I'll do is I'll extract all their reviews and I'll have my assistant put it on an Excel sheet and we'll categorize two different uh, categories, one to three and four and five. And what I'm looking at is I'm looking for a summary of commonalities, common words, common problems in one to three. Those are the problems, right? And if you can solve those problems or uh, improve the product around those problems, then all you have to do is market new and improved, problem solved, X, Y, Z, and it's going to help in the ours versus theirs marketing. Um, in terms of the four and five, if it's working and people love it, um, don't fix it. Now, the second thing is I'm a huge... I'm a huge believer in when I'm launching products, I will launch, I will order all the competitors' products because you have what's seen on Amazon and you have what's not seen on Amazon, right? So in a conjunction of looking at the reviews, I'm also physically ordering the products, testing the products, seeing what marketing they're doing um, and so on and so forth. And I'll give you another strategy for finding products that was that's my favorite that is uh, just as effective as the pulling back the layers and going into the micro categories. If I only had one strategy to find products and I couldn't use the dozens of different strategies, what I would do is I would look for the most successful sellers on Amazon in, in specific niches. And what I would do is you can go into their store. So if you go on the listing, if, if you go on the listing, you can categorize it, go to the listing, categorize it in the Chrome extension, whether it's Helium or Jungle Scout, and what you can do is if you click on the time of first launched up in the top column, what happens is it repopulates from ascending to descending order. So I'm looking for the recently launched product that has the lowest amount of reviews and the highest amount of sales. Because chances are, if these guys are already crushing and they have countless amounts of other SKUs and they're generating millions upon millions of dollars, if they just wouldn't launch this product, it was strategical. So that's a quick way that I find products um, with no guesswork, because a lot of these brands and big sellers have already done the lifting, the heavy lifting for me. So what do you do with it? So let's say that you found the seller and then they just launched, uh, let's say, a pencil holder. So what does that tell you? So if, if they have other SKUs that are crushing it, they're generating a decent amount of money and they just launched that product, more than likely they've done the research and the product is going to crush it. So now it's easy because I'll go pull up the keyword report on that product. And I'll look at the BSR or the Cerebral if you're using Helium 10. And I'll, I'll literally look and see, okay, what is the search volume? What is the average review on the first page? Um, and it's quick to find these products and identify, are they winners or losers? But nine times out of 10, they're going to be winners because they're not just figuring this thing out, right? This is their fourth or fifth or hundredth product, right? So that's a fast way to, to see um, what's already working. That's uh, That's smart. Yeah, so the key is you are first finding those successful sellers and then you're looking at their latest launches. You can analyze that listing. That's great. Okay, so we found our product and now let's talk about launch. Let's. How do you go about the launch? Yeah, so the launching is, for me, it's a two-step phase. Now, there's no right or wrong way to launch. Some people have opposing, this is the Apple versus PC conversation. Some people say, do all the due diligence, go all in, make sure you don't run out of stock, order three to five months worth of inventory, yada, yada, yada. Um, Amazon has become extremely strict in terms of inventory regulations, especially on non-seasoned accounts 
or new accounts. So when you're finding these products, you want to make sure you understand your account health and your threshold for inventory. Because more than likely, what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to launch, send as much as you can to Amazon and the rest to a 3PL for your first one to three orders until you have some seasonality or seasoning with Amazon. But what I do with the launch is I do what's called a micro launch. So in my launch, what I'm trying to do is when I find the product, I'm trying to get real user data on this product as fast as humanly possible. So we will send typically around 45 to 90 days worth of inventory. And the main factor on the 45 to 90 days is two things. Number one, how much are the average sellers selling and how much do I anticipate in selling off the bat of launching this product? And number two, how fast does it take for me to make the product and ship the product to Amazon? These are the things I'm looking at. And the med the sweet aspect of this is I'm trying to mitigate being stuck with too much inventory so we can move nimbly. This is if it's your first product and it's your first category. If you don't have a product, you're not in the category and you're trying to test categories and products, you want to be able to launch nimbly. So if you scratch that idea, you can move on to the next without having thousands of units um, in the US or in a 3PL or on Amazon. If you are already in a category and you have multiple products, you can be a little bit more aggressive. And typically we do three months of inventory. And like I said, if we can't send it all to Amazon, we split it to a 3PL here domestically. And on the launch, two things and two things only, because it doesn't matter if you're a seasoned seller like us, or you're a new seller, you have 30 days for a new ASIN. That clock is ticking from the minute that inventory is checked in. And there's only two things that Amazon cares about is review and review quality, as well as sales and sales velocity. So the most important, I see too many people try to be profitable on launches, try to drip feed launches. The worst thing you can do is take too long, be too slow, and be worried about profit margins in the first 90 days of a launch. The first 30 days, I'm throwing everything at the wall. So I'm trying to get as many reviews as possible. I'm trying to get the highest sales velocity and uh, sale ratio or conversion ratio to that listing as possible. So lightning deals, daily deals, um, giveaways. If you have an internal, if you have an internal audience already and you're launching to an audience, I'll pre-launch to that audience. If not, I'll build a pre-list. I think it's huge that you have a list that you're going to launch to off Amazon, regardless if you're a new company or an old company. If you're an old company that has pre-existing customers, use your email list, use your text list, use social media, um, do fun giveaways, right? If you don't have any of that, you can create a lead magnet, literally a waiting list and let go through your phone and find the top 100 people, friends, family, colleagues, people that you network with and say, hey, I'm launching this new brand. The two most important things are sales and reviews in the first 30 days. I'm launching them. I'm going to go ahead and get, like, you're going to get my product for free. I'll give you the money back. We need an honest review, preferably photo or video. Um, and this is how it's going to work, right? That way you can really drive that velocity of reviews and sales in the first 30 days. And that's what we're hitting on. That's what I'm focusing on. Okay. So uh, I have a few things that I want to put on the table and see what your take on it is. But uh, but I have to mention something first for our listeners. So uh, friends and family, asking them for reviews, I always say be careful because if they are sharing the same devices, same network, wireless network, and then you ask them for review, and uh, publicly offer to reimburse, this is going to be not a good experience for you from Amazon's standpoint. 
because they don't like that and they will not verify those reviews. And then if the person who is leaving the review has done this several times, they will in fact remove all the reviews that person posted and ban them from leaving reviews again. So uh, since review integrity is extremely valuable to Amazon, they want to make sure that these are real reviews that not it's, it's okay to solicit reviews. There's nothing wrong with it, but you just have to be careful about just asking people, you don't want quit pro quo. Uh, Amazon does not want quit pro quo. And, uh, you know, about two years ago, I think you could run Facebook campaigns and you could have those many chats uh, all automated. You know, you say, leave a review, I'll give you 100% reimbursement, blah, blah, blah. No more. Uh, Facebook won't even allow those uh, ads anymore. So uh, just be careful on the reviews. Uh, that's all I say. Uh, absolutely solicit, but make sure they are legit. Um, with PPC, without PPC, what is your take? Can I, because I have a lot of people who say, I don't want to satisfy Amazon's, uh, you know, greed by paying them. I'm already paying 15%. I don't want to advertise. I don't want to pay a penny. Uh, they don't like that. Uh, so, what do you think about launching without PPC versus with PPC? Yeah, the, the only time I would, I mean, there would be no justifiable reason for me to launch ever without PPC. Even like I have a personal brand with a million followers across social media. I have pre-existing clients. I have huge email lists. I'll still never launch without PPC. The only justifiable way is if you have a large audience, but even if you have a large audience and you're not using PPC, your competition is. So you need to understand what your competition is doing. What are they spending? How much are they spending? What keywords are they ranking top five for? And you have to understand that if there's, if you're in a competitive niche, like if you're in supplements or health um, or beauty or topicals, I'm in very competitive niches like beauty, health and office products, you're not going to make it to the first page without PPC because there's too many keywords and it's too difficult to rank for all of these keywords without that velocity to conversion ratio. So I don't know how you would do it. I'm huge for PPC. Here's where PPC has a bad rep. A lot of people put money in PPC campaigns and they're not monitoring it. A lot of people put a lot of money in auto campaigns. They're not monitoring it. PPC can be a gift or a curse. It can be a problem or a solution. Um, the key to PPC that I've learned, and I've been on the platform since uh, uh, Vendor Central and Vendor Express, when it was literally three uh, three keyword types, three bidding types, right? You had exact, exact broad and phrase. They didn't have negative. They didn't have display. You didn't have any of this stuff. And it was extremely easy and CPC was extremely low. Now they're constantly investing in the PPC platform because like you said, they make money off of it, right? It's free money for them. The biggest mistake that you can make with PPC is not monitoring it daily. You have to be looking at where the money is going. You have to be adding negative keywords. You have to be refining the bids. And this is what separates the um, A-list sellers and the beginners, right? And Russell Brunson says that amateurs monetize the front end and experts monetize the back end. Too many new sellers and even experienced sellers turn off keywords because they are break even or they are negative, but they're not looking at the velocity of sales that those are creating. So you have to generally understand it's like this pendulum. You're going to have low hanging fruit, long tail keywords. You're going to have keywords that are a, a two to three X return on ad spend, 
Then you're going to have keywords, which are always the ones that get the most sales, the most eyeballs that are break even or negative. So you have to look at the overarching um, return on ad spend or a cost or uh, to uh, total average cost of sale, not just independent incremental uh, keywords. So that's a few big mistakes I see a lot of people make. But with the with the correct review campaign, launch strategy and PPC, those three things alone, you can launch to the first page. The additional layer that I add when I'm launching is influencers. Since 2015, I've crushed influencers. Now that people know what influencers are in UGC, they still do not use it. Right now with in influencer, Pinterest, YouTube, and TikTok and UGC, not professional polished ads, but UGC user-generated content where the influencers make the content, then promote the content has been a game changer for launches and even for account uh, management when we're doing campaigns to maintain keywords and ranking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I tell people this. So actually, I on Sunday, I met somebody who uh, is not a seller yet and first of all had the wrong information about how much Amazon takes out of each sale. And, and uh, so I said, so how do you currently sell? Oh, I sell through the website. I said, so how do you get sales? I advertise, you know, Google ads. I said, let me put it to you this way. When you pay a dollar for a click on Google, and then you bring the customer to your website. You make the sale. Let's say you, you have good return on that. No problem. Does that dollar payment for that click and therefore the sale benefit your next sale? Does it bring you without clicking, without paying any organic business? No. It's you pay it and it's gone. But with Amazon, when you pay for clicks by running a PPC campaign, every single sale that you make as a result of that campaign, paid campaign, is ranking you up for those keywords. And what I have seen is with my clients, we launch and we'll look at six weeks after the launch, they are generating. 40% of their sales through paid campaigns, 60% comes organically. But you, there is a way to do it, right? So you can't just be advertising. You, you have to make sure that your PPC campaign is aligned with your content. So that way, when the two work together, and then you're bringing people to buy based on those keywords, and those keywords are already in your content, now suddenly your listing is going to rank up for that keyword and it's going to attract organic. So every paid click on Amazon is worth. In fact, I have, I have a SaaS platform and, and we're looking to build a metric. What is your paid to organic click ratio? So every paid click can actually generate between three to five organic clicks. And that's a big deal. You don't get that anywhere else. I don't know anywhere else, do you? Absolutely. No, I mean, it's a game changer. And the other thing is people people don't think about is LTV or lifetime customer value. So all of our products, this isn't mandatory. It's not a necessity. But for me personally, 
all of my products, I like to fall within subscribe and save. So that's, it's not, doesn't have to be like that. It's just me personally. I have great success with subscribe and save products, um, like mechanical, mechanical pencil, um, lead, um, bath bombs, soap, lotion, uh, binder clips, paper clips, um, paper plates. These are products I've made millions of dollars with. And what you don't, what you don't think about is you don't pay on attribution of LTV. You pay on first click. So if I'm paying for a client that comes uh, to my listing, let's say it's paper plates and they, I pay, let's just say a dollar 30. Okay. And my, and they sign up for subscribe and save. I don't pay Amazon for future purchases through subscribe and save. So for me, how I can lose money on the front end um, or even break even on the front end with PPC where my competition is turning these keywords off because they're not profitable, I understand what the lifetime customer value is. So I'm okay going negative on my high visibility keywords and losing a little bit on the first sale of that um, subscribe and save. But if I know my average user stays nine months and I'm only losing money on month one, month two through nine is all profit. And now when you look at that average acquisition of that client and what the value is, that's how really thinking ahead, how can I maximize this? And like you said, people don't think about that. Okay, this campaign may, may not be profitable, but we were talking previously about maintenance. You have to maintain ranking. You can't just make it to the first page and shut off PPC. If you don't have a way to get that velocity for those search terms or those phrases, you're going to drop. Your BSR is going to drop. Your ranking is going to drop. So that's why I tell people to look at it as a pendulum because the campaigns that are offering the most maintenance or maintaining your, your ranking are not going to be profitable or they're going to be break even, right? And then you're going to have these low hanging fruit. And where we really get crazy three to five X returns with PPC is really spending time on finding the low hanging fruit, misspelled keywords, keywords in different languages, uh, three word long tail keywords or long term phrase keyword match types. These are huge, like, and they've made us a lot of money. I have a question for my listeners. Are you experiencing cash flow challenges with your Amazon business? Well, silly question. Who is not, right? So let me introduce you to Viably a unique solution tailored for Amazon sellers and e-commerce enterprises. By connecting your Seller Central or Shopify account, you can promptly access funding along with a variety of financial tools, all for a flat fee. It's as simple as that. And for my listeners, they are offering an extra $1,500 in funding for eligible applications. Start your quick and easy application today at runviably.com forward slash legends. And that's runviably.com forward slash legends. Okay, let's talk about scaling. So where does the scale come from? I love, this is my favorite part. So we've already found the products. We've, we're into the niche. We validated it. Now scaling is simple. And I like to break it into a few different components. Number one, when we scale, we want to increase the profit margin. We want to increase the revenue. The easiest way to increase the profit margin is to, to decrease our um, um, the cost of our products. So the more products you order with your supplier, the lower the cost. That's one. Number two, now we're going to come into, let's say we started PPC, okay? Now, if we have one platform for advertising, we're going to start multi-platform advertising. So what I like to do is I like to do research on my competitors and see where they are and start there. And then the ace up my sleeve is 
where are all the places they're not marketing? So if my competitors are doing, let's just say Instagram, YouTube, and PPC, those will be my first three pri uh, priorities. But then I know they're not on Pinterest. I know they're not on TikTok. I know they're not on Snapchat. So then I'll go to those, right? Um, so for scaling for me is getting the inventory costs down, number one. Number two, going on multiple different platforms for advertising. And then number three, launching uh, semantically relevant uh, catalog products that um, are going to be in line with that first product. And I just made a post about this the other day. Too many people are misusing relationships with their supplier. My supplier helps me with packaging. My supplier helps me source products. My supplier gives me um, feedback and data as to what other people are selling on Amazon, what other orders people are buying. If they can't make the product or make the packaging or source anything that I need, they will find and broker the deals for me. So I'm telling people, if you already have the supplier for that first product, put them to work because it's in their best interest to help you get more products and to order more of that product. So you'll be surprised what they'll do and the links that they'll go to to help you launch your next product or order more of that first product. So exhaust that relationship with your supplier. Think about what other platforms can I get into? And here's the thing. When you find the niche, the category, you have your brand, you should go own all of the social media platforms. They are free. Make sure that you have congruency across all the platforms. So if your brand is Josh's brand, go secure all of those URL, even if you don't have a website. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, all of them, Pinterest, all of them, because it's absolutely free. And you want that brand congruency, which is going to help with the brand notoriety. And then when you get into that scale stage, now you can start launching. And lastly, without going down this deep rabbit hole, people start to get analysis paralysis when it comes to content creation for social media. You do not have to create any of the content. There's tons of platforms where you can get influencers and UGC creators to create content for you. And the beautiful thing is, if you understand how to post the content to each platform, you'll start to see that if you have one type of content created, now you can distribute it to all of these. For example, vertical videos will work on Instagram Reels, will work on TikTok, will work on YouTube Shorts, right? We'll work on Snapchat. So one video can be distributed to four platforms. So really think about that. And you can use platforms like Hootsuite to go ahead and schedule out 30, 60, 90 days of content on autopilot. This is an AI. This is a software that's going to auto post these for you. And once the ball gets rolling, you can go hire a VA on onlinejobs.ph for two to $5 an hour to manage your social media for you. I'm talking about messages. I'm talking about comments. I'm talking about posting, scheduling, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, you you you've got everything covered very nicely. I I want to add one more thing and uh, tell me what you think about this. So this is actually uh, I had a guest uh, for my listeners. Look up Marshall Tiplets. So this gentleman owns a three PL. So I invited him to the show so that. He could talk about how to pick a 3PL because these days everybody has to use one because Amazon is not going to take too much inventory. So, so I, I wanted my listeners to learn straight from the source what are some things to look out for in a 3PL. And I tell you what he said, which really is a game changer. He said that most companies, if not all, they see their 3PL provider as a cost center. 
they take so much out of my sales, so therefore they are closed. He said, you ought to change that and turn your 3PL provider into a profit center. For example, he said, it costs time and money and inventory to create bundles and packs at the supply level. He said, if your 3PL is equipped to create packs and bundles for you on the fly, now you are able to test all kinds of different variations under the same parent. So he said, that's what I always say. First, see if the 3PL that you're going after is able to do that. So this is the easiest way to scale, right? So if you are selling uh, the kind of products that you, you are selling, you, it's consumable, people buy over and over. Now creating those packs, you know, six pack, 12 pack, yep. it's a no brainer. And you can have, and if you do have a 3PL like that, and you just simply say, okay, just send 36 pieces, just make up a bundle of six and send 36. Let's see what, what's going to happen. Let's see what people will buy. And within two weeks, you can see exactly where the demand is. And then you can start to shift. And then at that point, you can decide, okay, I'm going to order this from the factory and it will come with its own you know, packaging and everything else. But this is the easiest way to scale, right? What do you think, Josh? No, that's 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 incredibly smart. Yeah, I have I haven't personally done that, but that's incredibly smart because it's difficult when you want to test different variations, like you said, three pack, six pack, nine pack, twelve pack, and then if you're making them in China and you're sending them directly to Amazon, you want to make sure that you don't have an abundance of inventory just becoming complacent in the inventory, and then you want to make sure you can test all these different variations, and it's incredibly difficult to get specific child ASIN um uh metrics or data it's very difficult so usually um that's where we'll we'll do like the main quantity and then we'll send a little bit of the other ones but that i've never thought about that it's, that's really smart incredibly smart well i mean that you can get reports on a child skew level you know you can get child ASIN reports it's just difficult because they're they're always changing and the majority of the sales are always going to be the primary so they're reporting to that you know what i mean to that primary um, the parent level or the primary uh, product quantity. So it's difficult because sometimes we've seen the data skewed. So, and then we, maybe sometimes when you're doing the research, they don't have the quantity that you want to test. So let's say the competitor and you have the child ASIN data and it's, let's just say six and 36, but you want to test a 12. How do you gauge that data? See, so it's, it's kind of what is difficult. So with your strategy, you can test that without having yeah. to have a bunch of stranded stranded inventory. So you can have your sell through rate, right? So inventory, if you send 36 pieces and after a week you've got 20 left, you sold 16. It's simple. So um yeah. All right. Let's talk about my favorite part. It's the exit. So uh, let's talk about how you uh, how you prepare for a good lucrative exit. So there's a lot of factors depending on the category that you're in, the niche that you're in. But um, now if I could go back, you really want to start your business in preparation for exiting. And the reason why I say that is because I get this question all the time. I'm just starting out. I don't have a product. I'm not in a category. I'm doing general broad research and I find three products that meet my, my criteria. 
how do I know which one I should choose? Well, you should look at the, what are those businesses selling for? What multiples are businesses in that category selling for? That's something a lot of people are not taking into consideration when they're choosing their first product and launching their product. So you want to identify what are the multiples in that category, in that niche, right? Um, a few other things that you can do is a lot of people are not doing this. You can merge or acquire competition extremely inexpensively, and you can even leverage low interest debt to do so. The easiest way to get that multiple higher or to get the revenue for that payday to get uh, be larger is to rather... You can merge different business types. For instance, let's say we add coaching in with our physical product. Let's say we add a SaaS with our physical product or a mobile app with our physical product. That's one way. Another way is to merge or acquire competition or other people who've died off but have lists. This happens all the time. In fact, Google does this every single day. They acquire businesses, dissolve the businesses, and take the data and add it to their database because data is IP and IP can affect or improve the uh, the evaluation of the company. So that's another thing. And then you really, from day one, a lot of Amazon sellers, it's go, go, go. I want to make this passive income monthly and I want to get started. I want to see my first sale. From day one, keep your books clean. You can use QuickBooks. You can use Excel, whatever it is, because if you want to sell your business, which should be the goal, when it comes time to sell your business, whether it's to private equity or it's to a VC or it's a private person, their goal is to lower your evaluation. And they're going to be looking at as many different ways as they can. Messed up books, inconsistency are two of the biggest EBITDA um, 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 hurt, hurts that happen in the negotiations because your books aren't in order. Um, you have inconsistency in sales. So in that world, sustainable growth is better than volatile growth, right? Because volatility is volatility. So you can have, uh, let's just say a $100,000 year, and then you have a $600,000 year and a $300,000 year. It's better to do 100, 130, 160, 190, because they're going to pick you away in that inconsistency. That's where I messed up in the past because I'm trying all this different stuff. We'll have a good month and then a bad month and then a good month and then a bad month. So really, really think about projections and sustainable growth. Think about what is the evaluations, what are companies selling for, businesses and brands selling for in that niche. You can look at Empire Flippers. There's tons of websites. Um, and then think, if the evaluation is low or the multiple is low, what can you do to increase that multiple, right? Um, two easiest ways, like I said, is to bolt on different uh, subsidiaries or companies, whether you build or you acquire, or to merger and acquire competitors. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I work with a client who has a fitness supplement line. And what we did is we created a network, okay? And this is a network where there's mobile apps and there's apps that you can watch stuff on, on television and stuff like that, like from any smart app. And what we've done is we've implemented monthly coaching. So there's four different coaching sessions, one per week, four different body groups. These are all weightless uh, weightless. Um, uh, working out that you can do from home. And just by simply adding that network, that television network, that media, not only does it add more value, because when you buy these products, you get access to this free group. 
And then guess what? Inside the group, we have upsells for premium packages. So now our LTV is increasing. Our, uh, our, our uh, ACV or average cart value is increasing. And the EBITDA is increasing because now it's not just a supplement line. Now it comes with a network, right? So that's just a perfect example. And you can build that or you can go acquire it. So just think about different things that you can do to increase that multiple and increase the value of the brand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, there is this so much in the, this real high-level approach with acquisitions, acquiring you know other sub, uh, subsidies or uh, competition. Uh, but also, the easiest thing that you can do is keep your house in order in terms of the books. Now, what does that mean? Let Let's break that down because that happens to be my pet peeve, people don't really know. And I was very surprised to see this. People in this country are very good at creating products, wheeling and dealing, but really terrible at running the business <laughs> because they don't understand the numbers. So what am I talking about when it comes to Amazon seller? I have seen so many Amazon sellers. They take that Amazon deposit that comes in every other week and they book that into their books as revenue. That is not the revenue, right? That is the net revenue. So you have to first post your performance as gross sales and then whatever Amazon takes out with their commission, FBA fees, post them as expenses so that you can see the big picture. Do not ever take the, the deposits and post them as sales. Yeah. You can easily do this with a software like A2X Accounting. It doesn't cost much to sign up for, and it will give you exactly. It will give you the breakdown. It will post it. The second thing that I always say is inventory. You've got to know. So I my, my typical story is this about inventory. If you have, let's say you've got $10,000 in the bank, you know you've got $10,000 in the bank. If one day you log in and you see 9,000, you know where that 1,000 is gone, right? You spent it and you know where you spent it. Now, you take that 10,000, put it into inventory, and then you put that inventory on the shelf at either at 3PL or at Amazon or in your warehouse. But what's the difference? It's the cash, right? Except it's sitting on the shelf. Except that people don't know where the inventory is. What's the value of the inventory left? If you ever ask them, okay, how much inventory are you holding? Well, we count that at the end of the month, every month. Well, counting doesn't really give you because at the time you're counting, you may have more inventory on the way. You may have already booked it into your books. And so it doesn't make sense. So, by counting inventory at the end of the month is no way to manage your inventory. You need to know real time how much is your inventory worth. I tell you why that's important. It's important because if you are holding $10,000 worth of inventory and your net, net, net profit per month is $2,000, that means it's going to take you five months before you see a penny from that profit because it's going to the inventory, financing, right? So that's those are two things that I always care about. Make sure that you're booking your Amazon 
numbers correctly into your books. And second, stay on top of your inventory. Know how much it's worth at all times. Uh, what do you think? Do you see this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It, it was a mistake that I made when I got started. I was just throwing everything into the business. And you trust me, if you think you're saving money not doing accounting from day one, it's false because if you if you do what I did, I made a ton of money. I was trying to save expenses, put everything into advertising and products. Then you make a ton of money and you're like, holy crap, it's time to pay taxes. It costs them significantly more money to do accounting when your accounting is jacked up or missing than it is to just start from day one. So like like he mentioned, man, keep keep all of your expenses, keep everything separate, jot everything down, understand inventory. And you got to start as if you planned on exiting this business because like you're talking about $2,000 worth of inventory. If we're five years into business and I have $2 million worth of inventory, well, that's going to affect what I sell the business for because I'm not selling that $2 million worth of inventory for $2 million. The profit on that $2 million is $2 million, so it's $4 million. So you could make a couple million dollar mistake. So you definitely want to get in order. You definitely want to project. And it's also going to help you with your account health because if your accounting is off, you don't understand generally how to order inventory, how much you should order, how much you really have worth of stock. And if you run out on a good product, when you get that message that displays, we don't know if or when this product will ever be available <laughs> on Amazon, your BSR is doing this. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's incredibly difficult to get back up there. And I've been there. I've had hundreds of subscribe and save subscriptions and run out of inventory. And what happens is the minute you run out of inventory, they cut the wire on that, on that subscribe and save. So all that built up residual income, you can lose. So definitely make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's. You know, one practical thing that uh, I made the mistake myself when I was selling on Amazon. Uh, so it, what happens is this dynamic about how much you generate in net cash every month compared to how much inventory you hold at a time. There is always a huge gap. It's it's what is, how much of a gap that is. All that equates to is what is your shortfall in terms of you being able to take money out of the business uh, to pay for your next batch of orders. So then what you find yourself in a position where you know that your margins are good. You know that you're buying for $3, you're selling for 12. That's a good margin or 15. It's a, it's a very good margin. You know that you're making money. You know that every month you're getting more and more and more orders. You know that that's also good, but you never have any cash. So what happens is you start your, your quality of life deteriorates because you don't have cash. And uh, so you start to live like a poor person in a wealthy environment. So what happens is at some point, somebody turns around and says to you, how much money do you need? You never know, right? You never know. Because if you don't know that those dynamics, you can't even answer because somebody who's ready to give you a check because they like what you're doing, you can't even tell them how much you need. So you've got to know your numbers and when it comes to inventory and your profitability and uh, everything else will just fall in line and you'll be able to make the right decisions. So uh, anyway, uh, I now want to get to know your story. I introduce you as someone working at minimum wage. And by the way, uh, I forgot to mention 
not only you were working for minimum wage, but also your girlfriend was at the time yeah was yep. also working for minimum wage. So, so you you guys so tell me uh, tell me where was this happening? Where where did you grow up, uh, grow up? And then take us to that moment where you are working for minimum wage. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a small town right outside Chicago um, in Indiana, a population of 22,000. Um, I was a felon at 18, multiple felon at 18, high school dropout, no degree, no diploma. Um, and I was working through a temp agency, which is basically where when you can't get jobs, you go to a temp agency and they give you jobs that no one else wants to do. So I was working for a place called Finitech Recycling Company, where I was a hand sorter and I worked 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. Bottles like this on the bottom, there's a triangle with a number. That's the grade or the quality of the recyclable. There's no technology that can decipher the different thickness of mill plastic. So we basically hand sorted through trash. That's what my job was for minimum wage. And I met my girlfriend at the time, wife now, through a mutual friend. And I worked at night. She worked during the day. So I would go visit her um, and just bring her lunch or hang out with her sometimes before work. And she worked for an entrepreneur. She was an immigrant, by the way. She come, her family come from Mexico. She was working minimum wage. Um, so she was an immigrant. She worked for a European immigrant who um, owned his very own business. He was a, a manufacturer of bath and body products. I didn't know that entrepreneurship existed. I didn't know that you could be a normal person and have a real business. I thought that you had to be inherited wealth or be, you know, the Waltons. I didn't know that that whole world existed, right? So I'm I'm watching him sit, you know, in the office with his legs kicked up. He's taking all the sales calls. He's running orders. They're making stuff. He's selling stuff. And I was just intrigued because he owned his time. And for me, entrepreneurship will really was um, compelling to me is the fact that I could own my own time. I could be my own boss. So I started to study him. And then I started to finally muster up the courage to start asking questions. What do you do? How do you do it? And I was obsessive with asking questions. And I call this the, the breadcrumb effect. If you're trying to get around someone successful or someone who has a wealth of knowledge or someone who's where you want to be at, and you ask questions, they're going to plant breadcrumbs they're not going to give you the loaf because time is the most valuable asset. You cannot recreate, repurchase, or replace. Once it's spent, it's spent. And successful people understand this. So he would give me breadcrumbs. And what's happening is he was teaching me about the business. He was telling me stuff. And I was implementing it as fast as possible. And he kept telling me more and more and more. And I would fall asleep in his office like this. And he'd come back the next morning. What are you doing? I said, I had to do everything that you told me. I got it all done. And he'd give me more and more and more. Long story short, you know, that's how we built a million dollar business in, in one year. Um, and that that's how that's how it works. My first set of products came from him. I took products that he couldn't sell. It was color, fragrance, mismatches, products that he wasn't selling or selling a least amount of. And the whole Amazon thing started because he did business to business. So he manufactured, sold to people. They went and resold the product under their own private label brand. And People would take these products and they would sell them in house parties. They would go into malls and get physical retail locations. And he, this, he was an older gentleman. And I would hear him on the phone. You guys need you need to figure out how to do e-commerce, figure out how to build websites, figure out how to run advertising, figure out Amazon. It's going to be the future. And I asked him, I said, you keep telling these people this stuff and they no one does it. How long do they last in business? He said, my typical um, reorder from business to business on new uh, business 
is three orders. I want to get that to 12. And I said, well, if they did the e-commerce thing and selling online, do you think they would make it to 12? He said, absolutely, because the amount of touches and the amount of overhead when you have physical retail locations is preposterous. And online, it's an endless supply. They called it foot traffic in retail. He said it's endless online. So I told him, long story short, I have no money. I'm willing to figure this thing out. I took the scraps. I took the bad products and stuff he couldn't sell. I started on eBay, then ventured to Etsy, and then got on Amazon. And that's when it was Vendor, uh, Vendor Express. They invited me to the vendor program, and I became an Amazon vendor. My first year, we did a million dollars in business. It changed my life. So that's that's the whole story. And a little irony, the if you remember, I told you I was hand sorting through trash with my bare hands for a company called Finitech. This was a large warehouse in Indiana where we grew up. My mentor had a small office on the other side of town. After that first year in business, I went from $1 million to $7 million a year in business. 7X the business became his largest client. We partnered and we needed a different warehouse. We had 50 employees. I was shipping an 18-wheeler of inventory per week out of the warehouse. I got into business to business as well as business to consumer. B2C was on Amazon. B2B was on Google and on Facebook and on all the other platforms. And the warehouse that we got was Finitech where I was hand sorting through trash for minimum wage. And my boss's office who denied me a dollar raise ended up being my office. So there's a little irony and a little story to say that your current situation is not your final destination unless you allow it to be. Wow. I mean, this is an awesome story. And and this thing about making your old boss's office your own and their warehouse, their location becomes your location while you were working for minimum wage. This is a hell of a story. Uh, and and you owe all this to simply going after this guy. I mean, he would have shared, look, from his standpoint, it was a, 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 a no-lose situation because he gave you the products that he wasn't selling anyway or selling very little of. So he only had to gain commercially. But what you did out of your hard work and your perseverance, you turned that into something that is you know, unimaginable for you at the time. So really, it was an easy decision for him to support you. But you had to do the work. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? They say that uh, entrepreneurship is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. That's Good. exactly what you had. Well, uh, this is a hell of a story. And uh, anybody listening to Josh, you better go, uh, go, Check out his uh, his website. So tell us, Josh, how can people reach you and tell us about your education platform? Because clearly we can't put everything into uh, just this one episode about what you teach and how can people take advantage of it? Awesome. Absolutely. So you can find me on all major platforms at my name, Joshua Crisp, Instagram, YouTube, etc. And the AMZ formula is our staple program. So we're a consultant where we help clients who are going from zero to one or from one to 10, start, grow, scale, and then exit their brand. So what I've done is I was thinking about like, how can I do something special for you guys? What we've done is the AMZ formulas are staple program. And it's, if you go to my website, the amzformula.com, it's 1997. But I was talking with my team and I said, like, how can we do something phenomenal for the legend, 
um, audience and really help them get started. So my team has agreed to put together a 50% discount code for the AMZ formula. And that's the amzformula.com forward slash legends with an S. Um, and regardless, I'm here to help and answer any questions any way as possible. On that YouTube channel, uh, which is my name, Joshua Crisp, you'll see that warehouse. So if you scroll all the way down, I've been recording content since 2018. And if you scroll all the way down, you'll see me and you'll see I don't talk as good. I'm not as polished. It's super ugly. But you'll see the warehouse. You'll see the environment. You'll see all the pallets of products and you'll see the growth. So don't compare your chapter one to someone's chapter 18. Just get started. Don't give up. Exactly. Well said. Thank you, Josh. This was a great conversation, a hell of a story. And everybody go check out uh, the amzformula.com forward slash legends. And thank you so much for 50% generous offer. So you are all going to get the discount. So uh, thank you, Josh. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Before I go, a quick reminder to say goodbye to your cash flow problems and claim your extra $1,500 when you qualify for $25,000 or more in funding. Go to www.runviably.com forward slash legends and start your application today. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.